Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. It's Wednesday. You know what that means? It's the day that we get to see each other and record our podcast. Yeah. And it's just the day where Instagram and all that stuff blows up in the morning. <laughs> Hump day. Oh, no, it's, you know, it's that too. <laughs> Although not literally. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe maybe for, for some. For some of you, yeah. <laughs> out there. Yeah. Not for all of us. Oh, no. I'm, to I'm totally blushing. Um <laughs> No, it's just and... that our podcast gets released from last week. We're prepping for this week. People start sending lots and lots of great comments and tagging and storytelling and stuff. And it just, Wednesday mornings are, are crazy. Yeah, it's so, busy. Yeah. So welcome, everybody. Good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to you as well. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk today a little bit about uh, an article that came out about GBS, came out in The Lancet, which is used to be a renowned publication. It's sort of lost a lot of its renowned anonymity. Is there such a word as renowned anonymity? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> anyway. And it's not just it's not just about GBS though, right? It's about this new vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, I just yeah. I didn't want to give them too much lead in because there's there's so many parallels to what's going on. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Great. Um, I just got a couple of updates. You've got a couple of bursts to talk about. Yeah, we didn't um, have time last time because we were so excited to get on with Hermine. Yeah, I know we didn't talk about much of anything, but I got a big, big, some big news. My friend Michael Hall, who is a breach practitioner in uh, Colorado, has come out of retirement due to a need in his community, and he's now taking hospital-based breach clients. Amazing! What community? In near Boulder, uh, near Colorado Springs. I mean, I can't remember exactly. But in Colorado, in Colorado, but yeah. he gave me his phone number and I'm going to put, give it everybody 720-313-2668. And if you're in that area or want to travel cross state lines, like we always say, then um, you should give Michael a call. He's an excellent breach practitioner. He doesn't do home birthing though, but it gives us another option because uh, he had retired. And he's, he even told me uh, we were talking yesterday. He said, yeah, I've retired twice. <laughs> that's great amazing for that community and good for him for you know like just stepping up and doing what he knows is needed that he can provide it's awesome yeah and another topic of for the people that believe that government-run health care is good this is, goes into the idiot file yesterday uh, because i changed addresses i had to change my medicare prescription drug plan Mm -hmm. uh, my premium dropped from $7.90 a month to $5.10 a month. So big savings here in Utah. I just want people to understand that. But <laughs> in order to do that, it took 45 minutes on the phone with an agent, totally being tortured by having to listen to everything that she had to read. And mm -hmm. she said, if you don't want me to read this, then you'll have to do the rest online. Otherwise, I'm obligated to read it. And mm -hmm. she read it. She was a nice lady. Her name is Betty. Mm -hmm. Nice lady. But she had to read every single disclaimer. And I don't know how many times the same thing was said over and over and over again. And then at the end, I thought I'm done. And she says, 
Now you have to listen to a recording. And for four and a half minutes, I have to listen to a recording. It's kind of like reading a, uh, a legal document or something like that. There's, I don't understand a word she's saying on the recording. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm fairly smart, still with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Senior citizen. Yeah. But I can't imagine somebody who's 70 or 80 trying to do this and having to sit on the phone for 45 minutes to change their $7 premium to a $5 premium because mm -hmm. I've moved the state, but I had to do it because my premium wouldn't have been any good. And I'm not taking any medication anyway right now. So I got the cheapest plan, but it was torture. And how can, you know, this is a, I, I don't know if she works for Aetna or if she works for the government, but if she took 45 minutes for me to get $5 a month, who's paying her salary? Well, I guess it's better than, you know, most people aren't going to want to, older people aren't going to want to go online. So at least they're giving them that service of like, you know, having somebody walk them through the process. I know. No. It's, and, I, and I got to a human being fairly quickly. But, and I, yeah. I think that that's a positive you're saying. I love the fact that you find a positive in this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were recording me because, you know, they record for customer service or yeah. Better customer service or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said, "Can I get a copy of that recording?" <laughs> she laughed at me. <laughs> well, at least you made a joke. That's good. Oh my god, it was just it was just torture. <laughs> okay, so that's that. So you have some birth stories. Well, I wanted to just you know, I mean, catching up. It's been uh, the weather here has been a little wacky. Um, you guys might have seen that. That I don't know. Maybe it's all of California that you're hearing about, but um, I'm here in Santa Barbara and the. They had a mudslide five years ago here that was very serious and people died. And so um, it was the anniversary. And I think that there was some like PTSD in the community about that as well, because it had been such a big deal for their community. But the way that it works is because we have mountains behind us, there's a highway that runs along the coast that gets you in or out. And it was completely closed down. And um, I have an assistant midwife. Um, she's her own she's a midwife in her own right in her community. That's about 40 minutes from us inland in a, in a little town called Ojai. And, um, I just saw on her, she's been totally like they can't, she can't get out. So if I had a birth, I'd have to figure something else out. And, um, they just airlifted her from her home. So, you know, it's interesting thinking about like, you know, managing births and stuff when you've got, weather like this, I had to make arrangements for a mom that's due down in Ventura. The roads were closed. I had no way of getting to her. So luckily one of the um, home birth midwives in Ventura said she would get to her. Heller, they had flooding in her area. Those kind of things I think we always think about in terms of midwives when we have this type of, we really have to rely on each other and know that, you know, one of the other midwives said, you, you can have her come to my birth center. And, and I thought, you know, well, if, if it's an emergency, you know, and she can't have anybody come to her, at least she's not going to have to end up going to the hospital. So just some interesting things around that, that people might not have. Yeah. And the contrary to that argument is, is if a woman is trapped in Ojai and she's, and she doesn't have a midwife, she's planning a hospital birth mm -hmm. down in Ventura mm -hmm. and she can't get down to Ventura when she's in labor. Sure. Um, you, you should have people should understand that you need a backup plan, especially this doesn't happen very often. I mean, I remember I lived in Ojai, um, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, and we had what was what then called a hundred year rain. Mm -hmm. And I think you're having another one. 
<laughs> 20 years later, you're having another 100-year reign. But, but uh, see, you can be wrong if you're a weatherman. It's okay. It's okay. But you can't be, you know, certain, certain professions, you're not allowed to be wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah, you have to plan for these sorts of things. And, yeah. uh, you know, blizzards in the Northeast and this kind of rain and floods. I mean, the other thing, too, that, again, the negative for me in all this, I mean, the positive is communities come together and people help each other out. The negative mm-hmm. is that, that all this water that's falling is just washing into the ocean because my state has not built any new infrastructure to capture this water. That is kind of crazy since we're in droughts like most of the year. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. droughts serve a purpose because they can influence your behavior because of climate change when there's a drought and they like that there's a drought. So they're not going to try to fix the drought. You can quote me on that. There's a lot going on. We'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to the GBS article. Okay. okay. Want to do bursts or you want to talk a little bit about last week's podcast, the, the follow up that we talked about? Sure. Let's do that. Well, you know, one of the things I wrote down that I never got to read. I thought was really interesting. What was the doctor's name? Lesman. Yeah, so Dr. Lesman. She said uh, in regards to, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but she was talking about when the water breaks. Um, and she said, you will get doused. She was talking about, she was talking about when the water breaks as a provider, you will get doused. And a le- little light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, this is why they break the water. Don't you think? It's controlled. Uh... So well, you're, you're not sitting there like we do at home births where we're like, you better cover yourself up because you know that you're probably, there's probably going to be a lot of water coming at you soon. Uh, yeah, but why are they wearing the, why are they wearing the hazmat suit if they don't care? Why do they care if they get doused? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was kind of, it was just kind of a light bulb. I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense to me. It would be like a controlled environment. But one of the things I texted you was after we talked to Hermine, and one of the things I noticed when I was listening to um, everybody speaking, even you know the ones that were defending um, the midwife, was speaking about birth in a way that's like birth is inherently dangerous. It is a dangerous thing. And I understand from the perspective of like, we can't control any outcome. And so you can't necessarily point to the providers because of a loss or because of something happened, because that's just part of birth, but it's really, it's part of life. It's not necessarily, I mean, birth is a natural physiologic process that happens in the animal kingdom millions of times a day. Um, And it's just, you know, it's not that birth is necessarily a dangerous thing. It's that life has risk to it. And I just thought that that kind of languaging and continuing to perpetuate that the only way for you to be responsible and to survive this dangerous thing is to make sure that you have a medical provider to manage it for you. And I just, that's not something that I believe in. I believe you should have a choice of having somebody with you or going to the hospital. I think that that, you know, that you should be able to make your own risk assessment, but to say that it's irresponsible or that, you know, the only way for you to do it is with somebody medically managing. I just don't, I just don't like that being kind of constantly perpetuated. Yeah. Well, that's been the culture for a hundred years and, and that, it, and you said the word is perpetuated. It is yeah. perpetuated and it's projected because it's per- perpetuated in our profession that doctors and nurses who work in the hospital are trained that 
that any, something could go wrong at any time and you have to be prepared for all these things. And that's why we have algorithms and that's why everyone gets an IV and everyone gets blood drawn and everyone gets in bed and everyone's monitored because something could go wrong at any time. And when you are raised in that culture and that's all you know, then that's all you, then you're going to project that upon every person who comes into your sphere, whether it's family members or clients or patients or, or whatever, you're, you're going to project this fear. I mean, I, hear this all the time from people who write to us that say, you know, my, my sister-in-law is an OB. And when I tell her what I'm doing, she's she completely freaks out. Mm -hmm. They do. And again, they freak out because they see danger and they see lack of control where you and I see trust and, and the normal human condition, except in rare cases. Yeah. In, in rare cases, uh, you know, the medical model is, is so vital but the fact that it's taking something that's normal, it's kind of like there's a parallel when I talk to uh, people. People ask me pediatric questions sometimes, and I, I don't respond to those. I say I'm not a pediatric expert, but <laughs> I have an opinion. <laughs> um, but it's like, well, child visits, they're medicalized. Yeah, I've I never did those. We're going to talk to next month. We've got somebody coming on, and we're going to talk to you about that. So I'll, I'll save that. But yeah. there, are, there are parallels, and the perpetuation of it, and Listening and watching that trial and watching the three experts speak, none of whom were really experts in breach delivery or home delivery, as you, as you mm -hmm. said last week, talk about breach and, and home birth as being this dangerous thing. And then people watch that and other things like that. And then they come away with the idea that it is. And then they go to see their OB and their OB reinforces that. Yeah. The system needs yeah. to be uh, dismantled. Yeah, exactly. So it's time to talk about another one of our sponsors, and this is a brand new sponsor who I was fortunate enough to meet some of the people that work there when I was at a dinner in Austin, Texas, from thisisneeded.com. So Bliss, tell us a little bit about them. Well, you know what's so cool is Julie, one of the founders, was my client. She had a beautiful home birth with me, and I know this company really well because she's in Los Angeles. And Needed is a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for mamas. Needed offers the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market with the best nutrient forms and dosages to help you thrive, not just survive. Not only is this nutritionally complete, but it also comes in three options, a powder, which I really love when they do powders for prenatals because some women don't really like to take pills, especially when they feel nauseous. So they can throw it in a smoothie and get a lot of great benefits. So that I really do love. Capsules or essentials. The founder of Needed are two mamas who discovered through their own nutrient testing that they were extremely deficient in the key prenatal nutrients, despite eating healthfully and taking a prenatal. They dug into the research and found that they were not alone. 90% of women who take a prenatal vitamin and yet 95% are left with nutrient deficiencies. So Julie and Ryan went to work and redesigned prenatal multi from the ground up with a group of perinatal nutrition and health practitioners. So check them out. They have an amazing line of prenatal vitamins and choline and collagen and all kinds of really great stuff. So check them out. Yeah, I got a gift bag from them and it was filled to the brim with all the different things they have. And once I get my medicine chest in order in the new house, I'll be excited to open them all and start giving the ones that are appropriate for me to try. Yeah, because they have a line for men too now. It's right. And, and you know what? There's a lot of variety out there. It's kind of like when you're shopping for shampoo and you look at the shelf and you don't even know where to begin if you don't have a brand that's your favorite. 
So let's make Needed our new favorite brand and, and use them. And all you have to do is to go to thisisneeded.com, just spell it out, T-H-I-S-I-S-N-E-E-D-E-D.com. And in this case, put in the code word birthing instincts, and you'll get either 20% off a one-time purchase, which is a really good deal, or you'll get $100 off of a three months or greater subscription. So go to thisisneeded.com and use birthing instincts and give them a try. They support us, so we're going to support them. Yay, Needed. Thank you, Needed. So I was supposed to take December off to um, spend time with my boys. And, you know, I, I, I've i been going up to Sacramento, but this time they were coming down to Santa Barbara. So I kind of got some inquiries and um, I negotiated with them that I was going to be off call December 23rd. And so the people who hired me um, for December knew that I was going to be off call December 23rd. I had a backup. Everybody was agreed upon. So December 23rd was a Friday. So I guess it was December 20th. One of my multi moms goes into labor. She was so worried because Friday was going to be the day that I was going to be off. And she had gone a little early last time. And so she was starting to get nervous. And I felt terrible because it was kind of that same situation, like bumping up against 42 weeks, you know, but she went into labor spontaneously. We didn't have to do anything. And she labored beautifully and ended up having a vaginal, obviously water birth at her home. And one of the things that was really interesting that I wanted to note, um, was that she, you know, I've talked about this before. If you, if the water's not deep enough in the birth tub, then sometimes depending on the position that you're in, um, your bottom could be above the water and the baby's head could be born above the water, which is exactly what happened in this situation. Cause we couldn't quite get the birth tub deep enough. And she just lifted her bottom in just the right way that the baby's head came out above the water. So, um, I asked her if she could stand up and dad was planning to catch. And so his hands were underneath, you know, waiting for this baby to come out. And I was like, so nervous that this baby was going to drop into the, into the water below. So I had my hands beneath him as well. And the next push, the baby goes literally flying out like across the tub. <laughs> and, um, there's this amazing picture. Maybe I'll put it in my stories. Um, if the mom is okay with it, but the birth photographer sent me, sent me the image and the look on my face as the baby is flying flying across <laughs> was so funny. And we were joking around about no bliss. You're no Lindsay Mihalis <laughs> because remember we talked about how she looks great. In oh, every perfect. She looks perfect in every Always. picture. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, no me. I was very focused. So anyways, the baby was born beautifully. Um, and we had zero complications. Um, this is actually a local NICU, uh, nurse, um, and has decided to have her baby, her second baby at home and beautiful. No, we didn't have to do anything. So that was the beautiful birth on, um, right before the solstice. And then the other mom wasn't due until the 28th. She was a first time mom. So we really thought she was going to go when I got back from vacation. And, um, you know, there, of course I still had a backup in case. Um, but I said, Right after that birth, I was like, yay, I'm off call, blah, blah, blah. And then that night, the next night, Wednesday night of the solstice, um, this first time mom's water breaks. And one of my doula friends was like, oh, you shouldn't have said you were off call. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, well, 
it's it's a Thursday. She's going to have her baby by Friday. This is going to be totally fine. This is awesome. Then nobody has to worry about like, you know, me being gone. And so her water broke and, um, you know, thing that we normally tell people, okay, great. If it looks clear and all of that, just put a pad on and go back to bed and we'll communicate more in the morning. In the morning, she said she felt like things were coming on fast and even better that we we could just have a quick, beautiful home birth with her. Her doula went over and um, who's also my student, Anastasia, and um, said, I can't really tell what's happening with her. Her contractions are coming every couple of minutes, but she's still really chatty. No bloody show, nothing, right? So I said, okay, I'll come over. So I went over, I set up, I left all my equipment, was there for probably about an hour. And she was laboring vocally in her bedroom with her partner. They were doing a great job coping. After about an hour, I thought, I really should probably check and see what's happening because it was that kind of labor where you just couldn't, it didn't, it wasn't like birth was imminent, you know? And I just wasn't sure if I should stay or if she could labor with her doula for a while. And so I offered a vaginal exam just to kind of see what, what, what was going on. And I couldn't even reach the cervix. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, sweetheart, you know, here's what's going on. We gave her a bunch of ideas and sent her out on a walk and told her partner to do um, a bunch of things like mile circuit and spinning babies and stuff like that. Um, they labored together that whole, the whole rest of that day and into that evening. And then, you know, the plan was the next morning to go and check on her. And I believe that they called Anastasia to come back. And she said, I really think you should come soon. I think she's having a really hard time. And so I went over, um, you know, to like give her all the support that we could to, to help her cope and move forward. And Mm -hmm. we anticipated that she was still having some kind of uh, malposition. And so we went over and I wasn't there more than, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And she was like, I really think that I'm ready to go to the hospital. And, you know, we talked to her about what that would look like and made sure that she felt really comfortable in doing that. And she's like, I feel like I did a really great job. I labored all day yesterday. And I just really, I just don't think I'm in the right mental space anymore. And so because it was the day that I was supposed to be off call, um, she went to the hospital with Anastasia. I sent over the records. Really great. Oh, this was the other thing. When we called one of the hospitals, they were full. They said she can come, but we don't know when she's going to get a bed or when she'll get an epidural. That was like our backup plan. This is in Ventura? And everybody, mm-hmm. and wow. everybody was so surprised. And I was like, it's going to be Christmas Eve tomorrow. Like, I'm not surprised that the beds are full because of probably a bunch of inductions. Oh, my know? God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that just I, I was so enamored with your story and all the natural and support. I completely lost track of the way obstetrics actually is practiced. You're right. Oh my God. I was like, I'm not surprised at all. So of course she didn't want to wait hours at a hospital without her pain relief. So we, we um, changed directions. There's two hospitals in Ventura and went to the other hospital. And Anastasia said the doctor that she had there was absolutely fantastic. And she, after the epidural, she um, dilated to seven really quickly, like probably within a few hours, got to complete labor down and pushed for five hours with that doctor at the hospital. And then they finally um, decided to go in for a section. But the hospital support that she got was really amazing and is exactly, you know, this is exactly the scenario that 
we would hope for when, you know, a, a mom decides, you know, people talk about transports all the time, right? This is a very typical one, a long labor, a first time mom. Um, and she just decides that she's ready for something different. And so she got really respectful um, care and um, all of the things to support her. And unfortunately, um, it did end up in a surgical birth, but she feels very complete. She feels very like I did so much to try and make this happen. And she doesn't have any bad feelings about, you know, how it turned out at all. And I think that that's a good thing to know too, is like, you know, if you feel honored and respected and you feel like you have choice and you feel like it's really up to you, the trauma from these choices sometimes aren't present. Like you don't feel like you have trauma. You feel like you really got to make a choice. It's a great story. Do you want to give the name of the physician? I don't, I don't remember. Oh, you don't know. Okay. Mm -mm, no. Because, right. you know, <laughs> uh, obviously listeners in that area would love to find out who that was. Well, they can reach out to me and I will for sure find out. Fair enough. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. That's two good stories of two mm -hmm. different outcomes, both of which honored informed decision-making and respect for the woman. And ultimately both women came out satisfied without that regret or that questioning that they often, when we read letters, we're going to read some letters in a minute. You're going to see what we're talking about. Salty yeah. AF. I have my salty AF water bottle here. <laughs> um, Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the... BS. Like us. Like us. Right. I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out, when you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor. Yeah. It would have been good. You might have been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them, as you know, that I drink, I shouldn't, but I do. So, um, and it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is, uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm -hmm. but it comes in, let's see, I think I got to memorize now citrus and raspberry, well, raspberry is my favorite and, um, orange and lemon habanero and, uh, watermelon, watermelon, and unflavored, unflavored and, and chocolate salt. salt. Right. Anyway, if you go to drink element, Dot com that's drinklmnt.com and put in the code word birthing instincts you'll get a free sample pack with any order uh please uh support them as they support the podcast and we just want to send our gratitude to them thank you element thanks element you look great today by the way well i thought you might say something so i finally got to have like a hairdresser up here. I did a barter with one of my clients, but you know, it was kind of like just doing my roots and everything. And I had the same woman in LA for, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 years. So finding somebody new is not always easy. So I'm very, yeah, you know, I don't get a chance to get bartering up here very much because um, most painters, plumbers, pool guys, you know, roofing guys, they, they, they don't need my services. So it's <laughs> You never know. There's not much you I can know. do. Um, yeah, I do love, not that I do you love don't always look. Not that you don't always look good, but I'm just saying your hair looks particularly. It's stunning, a new look. Stunning yeah. today. Thank you. Steve. Um, okay, so we have a uh, new contact information that I want to give out to people. Yes. Uh, we have a Google Voice line where you can call 
and you can speak don't you know succinctly don't make a, a saga out of it but you know, uh, to leave some comments and we'll be listening to them and some of them will be, be in the future we'll be playing on the podcast and that phone number is 805-399-0439 that's 805-399-0439 we hope to hear from you there and then we have a new email address that's birthing instincts podcast at gmail.com and we put that out, I think, on Instagram about a week ago, and we've uh, gotten quite a few responses. And we want to appreciate everybody that's responding to us. We've read all the letters. We're going to yes. go through a couple of them right now, like three of them, I think, right now. The thing we want you to know is that both um, Stu and I will, you know, we have access to that, so we can both read them. And then also, um, we will read them all, but we may not necessarily read them all on air. But um, we will we will use that information to potentially um, inform a future podcast topic. So we love to hear from you. Yeah, and, so, and most of you will have to understand that. Listen, I can't respond to all of them either. Mm -hmm. So right with the intention of telling us stuff, and if we have the time and, and we want to get back to, we will. But don't be disappointed if we if you don't get a response from us because your yeah. emails are going through. This first one is from Katie. And let's see, where's Katie from? Oh, it'll come up. I think she's in Las Vegas, I think. All right. She says, hello, I'm a newer listener, someone on my precipitous birth Facebook page. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> Suggested your podcast a few months ago when I was about six months pregnant with my third baby. I'm still working my way through all of your older episodes and enjoying every minute as you become my very favorite labor podcast. Huh. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Although I may be slightly biased considering my firstborn was breach. But looking back, I'm convinced that you and people like you were the reason I had a successful and amazing home breach surprise delivery. <laughs> when I was about 34 weeks pregnant with my first, that was about six years ago, we moved from St. Louis to Las Vegas because of my husband's work as an ER travel nurse. While I had been planning an attempt at an intervention-free birth at a hospital with a midwife, home birth was always in the back of my mind as my mother had attempted one with me, and I also was very moved by the business of being born, just like everybody else. Yeah. When I discovered that no doctor in Las Vegas would take me on as a patient this late in my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I'm just leaving silence for effect. Pregnant pause. <laughs> yeah. She's there 34 weeks and no doctor will take her on. Yeah. We've talked about the reasons for that, but most of it is just obtuseness and- Lack of humanity. And some finance and it's financial, but that putting financial before humanity, that sucks. Yeah. So, so when they I finally took the leap and started researching home birth midwives, my gut pulled me toward one of the ones I interviewed right away. And we had our first appointment the following week. Little did I know that would also be our last appointment <laughs> because four <laughs> days later I went into labor. Well, I was drawn to the idea of home birth and going with all the hospital without all the hospital payments. I had done zero when it came to research. I was really winging it. I figured I took yoga and I knew how to breathe through pain and I would be fine. Looking back, I think ignorance was bliss. The other kind of bliss, by the way, <laughs> because I can easily get stuck in my head. I believe that labor hitting me out of the blue gave me some kind of freedom to simply trust my body with knew what it was doing. Labor started for me when I woke around 3.30 in the morning, thinking I had to use the bathroom again as usual. Instead, I felt a small gush of water as soon as I stood up. I knew nothing about meconium. And I didn't want to hear anything scary. Thank goodness my husband just called our midwife and asked that she come and really didn't bother me anymore about it. Smart. 
As the intensity of the contractions increased, I moved to the bathroom floor to be on all fours. I liked having hard floor to push against. My midwife arrived shortly after and asked to listen to the baby's heartbeat, which she found right away. And it was just low enough that she didn't express concern over him being breached as he could have turned. She did a quick cervical check and I can't remember what I was, maybe four, maybe six. By 7 a.m., little butt cheeks were starting to crown. Mm -hmm. I could feel my husband's extreme horror as he asked my midwife whether we needed to go to the hospital. In my head, I responded, I'm not fucking going anywhere. <laughs> my midwife calmly responded that this was a variation of normal and that he was Frank Breach, a very safe position for us to deliver at home, and so we did. I managed to get his legs, torso, and arms out in one enormous push. It's a primate, by the way. Mm -hmm. I was really hoping my work was done and he could just be pulled out. Haha. Uh -huh. How wrong I was. My contractions had stopped. Something I'd heard Dr. Sue say is pretty typical, I believe. I'm not saying it's typical, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. And after a minute or two, my midwife informed me I'd have to go without a contraction and just push the baby on my own. And I did. A whirlwind three-hour labor. Oh, thus the precipitous birth Facebook page, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> My wonderful midwife mentioned that she'd attended a breach training not long before that. A few months later, she messaged me when she had another breach as part of a twin delivery. My midwife was so amazing, and we just clicked. I knew I, couldn't, I could trust her completely, and she provided exactly what I needed while I was in labor, mostly just to watch, wait, and trust that my body knew exactly what it was doing. And now I think about how amazing it is that she had attended that breach training and that I was even available to her. Thank goodness I was. I'm sure that if I'd shown up at a hospital in labor with a breach at only 36 weeks, things would have been terrifying. Thanks again, Katie. That's great. Thoughts? You know, the, the thing, well, the thing that I want to tell people is that, um, I mean, I don't know every midwifery training, but I'm pretty confident that we all learn breach skills in our training because we know that we could have a surprise breach at home like that. And we need just like a shoulder dystocia. We need to understand the mechanics and, and what to do if things aren't moving forward normally. It's always good for us to continue to learn though. I've done a lot of additional training in lots of different things since I graduated, just because things usually go so normal, our skills need to kind of be brushed up on because we're not necessarily doing them all the time. So to remind ourselves or to learn from different people and get different tips and tricks is um, really helpful. So yeah, developing muscle memory for anything that you do repetitively is a really good thing. And, yeah. and seeing enough reaches when you know things are progressing normally or they're not yeah. is a really good thing. But I just love, I love stories like that. I love stories where they reference the idea that training is so important and the kind of work, the kind of care they would have gotten had she shown up at the hospital, presumably based on experience would not have been anything close. Yeah. 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 Okay. We all need to, we all need to know the skills for sure. So you, oh, we were talking a little earlier about unnecessary things happening sometimes. <laughs> so you have a letter, I think from Caitlin. Yeah. And you want to read so that? Yeah. So Caitlin says, hello, Dr. Stu and Bliss, all the way from New Zealand. Now, I just have to say, I love that we get um, letters and comments from all over the place. It just makes me so happy. Um, I'm so grateful I found your podcast and for the work you and Bliss do. I wish the world had more doctors and midwives like you too. And I really wish I had found this podcast prior to my baby's birth in 2021. I'm originally from South Africa, but I now live in Auckland, New Zealand. South Africa has a ridiculous high C-section rate in private hospitals. And now being in New Zealand, 
which is a lot more pro-natural birth, I expected a different birth experience. Sadly, it seems once you are in hospital and all the interventions start, it is always the same story and quite often results in C-sections. I had my first baby girl in hospital on 1st of September in 2021 via an quote, an emergency C-section. I was diagnosed quite late in pregnancy at about 37 weeks with, quote, gestational diabetes. All my glucose, glucose tests were normal throughout my pregnancy until this stage, which was strange. Hold on a second. I got to stop yeah. you right there. Yeah. I'm hoping that she's talking about urine dips because otherwise all my glucose tests were normal throughout pregnancy. I mean, uh-huh. how many are they doing? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And what did yeah. she eat just before she peed in a cup to, de- right. to declare that she's all ju- I mean, gestationally diabetic at 37 weeks? Yeah, you can't you can't diagnose it just by a urine test. And by the way, the term gestational diabetes always freaks doctors out, too. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, gestational diabetes is really I hate to use the term a nothing burger, but most often it is a nothing burger. Yeah. What do you mean by that? There's more panic involved on the medical side than is actually warranted. Most babies with gestational diabetes are not macrosomic. Mm -hmm. They're easily controlled with diet. They -hmm. don't need to be delivered early. Their risk of stillbirth isn't any greater than the general population. Mm -hmm. The risk of stillbirth relates to, you know, blood sugars out of control and type one diabetes, poorly controlled, that sort of thing. Yeah. And yet the word diabetes is in there. So people immediately respond to the thing that, oh, it's diabetes. It's diabetes. We have to do something. We have to intervene. And that's. Where we got so I don't know. Again, I, I wrote a little question of like well, what test? Because why are they testing her at 36 and 37 weeks for, for her glucose? Yeah. And if she's spilling a little glucose in her urine, that doesn't make you gestationally diabetic. Now, maybe there's more to it, the story. Maybe yeah. she had blood drawn after that, or maybe she they did another three-hour glucose tolerance test on her at 37 mm-hmm. weeks. I don't know, but yeah. it's a bit over the top and it's a bit algorithmic. There's not a lot of individualized thinking there. Okay, yeah. sorry. And we did do a whole episode on gestational diabetes. So we'll um we'll link that in the show notes. So those of you who are just catching up on episodes can go back and look at that. We'll talk all about the testing and all of that. All right. So getting back to her letter, um, the doctors and midwives advised that I needed to have a C-section, which is interesting too, or to be induced as an ultrasound scan showed that my baby was going to be too big. I hear this all the time. And they put a lot of fear into me about the risks of my late gestational diabetes diagnosis and having a large baby, shoulder dystocia, et cetera. She was born weighing 3.7 kilograms. What is that in pounds? Well, 3,600 is eight pounds. So uh, that's eight pounds, three ounces. Just over eight pounds. Yeah. Okay. Um, She was not quote unquote too big. I did feel- Of course she wasn't. Of course she wasn't. You know, yeah. I mean- this is dumb doctor dogma on steroids. Yeah. Everything they did to this lady was not necessary. Right. But it gets worse. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I did feel as though I was really given, I didn't, I'm sorry. I didn't feel as though I was really given a choice about the induction. It felt as though I was being told by my, my midwife what will be done. Being a first-time mom at the time and not as informed as I am now and with the adra- added stress an uncertainty of birthing during an insane tyrannical level four COVID lockdown in New Zealand, I agreed to an induction at 38 weeks. They induced me with prostaglandin gel at 10 a.m. 
on August 31st, 2021. And by the late afternoon evening, I was having intense contractions. My water broke by itself in the early evening and I was six centimeters dilated by 4 a.m. It's pretty moving pretty well for an induction. Yeah, um, I, wonder if, I wonder if somebody got doused. <laughs> Probably not because they weren't right there in the front row. Um, the next day, um, before, um, I found the contractions extremely intense and close together and requested an epidural, which is very common when you are being um, induced. Is this, she doesn't say if she had Pitocin. Oh, in the next paragraph. Okay. The epidural didn't seem to work and I became a bit distressed. I think I was given Pitocin as well without my informed consent. I now understand the sort of unbearable pain I experience is expected with inductions because your body doesn't produce oxytocin. So stop for a second, Bliss. When she said that, you know, as your body doesn't produce, you know, that had never really occurred to me. Really? As a no, as a reason why pain is is worse. I don't know. We have never really talked about that in that sense. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Because if we did, I'd remember. I mean, I yeah. don't remember a lot of stuff, but I'd remember that. Uh-huh. Um, but that's a really great I, th- theory of why Pitocin or other contractions that are artificial hurt more. Because you're yes. not secreting your bonding love. Any of the hormones. They're starting to get blocked because it's a synthetic form of oxytocin. So the the endorphins and all of those other things that help you cope with pain are not necessarily being released in the same way. And, you know, on a, on a little bit of a side note, Stu, that you just reminded me, um, one of our podcast friends that I really love, um, did a post yesterday and they were talking about, um, comparing a hospital vaginal birth unmedicated with a, with a home birth. Uh, or birth center birth, community birth, unmedicated. And they called it both were physiologic births, but that's not true. Just because you have a vaginal delivery without medication is not physiologic. When we talk about physiologic, we're talking about a woman who is, is not disturbed so that she can choose where to push, when to push, what position, when to eat. And that affects those hormones. And that is one of the biggest parts of physiologic birth is the hormonal cascade that is um, not interrupted by feeling afraid or synthetic oxytocin. So yeah, definitely. By around 5 a.m., the midwives were concerned about my baby's heart rate, although they also seemed to be having trouble getting the CTG to measure correctly. I remember them bringing in different machines to try. CTG? Oh, that's the uh, fetal monitor. That's cardiotocographic. Uh, something or other. Ah, 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 it's okay. uh, it's the British. It's a British way of saying it. Great. Um, the OB was called in, and she did two scalp pH tests, which gave a result of three point four and five. She immediately hold said, it, "We need to got to stop there for a second. Yep. Okay. Those numbers can't be right. Physiologic pH is around seven point two, seven point four. When you're below seven, you're almost not compatible with life. So unless they're using different units in New Zealand, that doesn't make any sense. But Again, uh, the use of fetal scalp pH is something that, you know, if you're trying to avoid a C-section, I guess it's a good step. I think it's a reasonable choice that that doctor did, but I have no idea what those numbers mean. So I don't want anybody listening to think that the baby's actual pH was 3.4 and 5, because that's lab error, if anything. That's not something you could go on. Nobody can live with a pH below about 6.8 or 6.7. So if those numbers are correct, then they were reacting to false number, lab error, and they should have known that. They should have repeated the test or just ignored it. But anyway, go ahead. Good point. 
She immediately said we needed to do an emergency C-section. This was heartbreaking at the time. It felt as though my baby was very close to being born. Again, I now understand it is common for inductions to result in field distress. Do you agree a C-section was necessary for those pH results and and considering I was in active labor. Well, you just you just talked about that. Yeah. So even though I was six to seven centimeters, I can't explain it, but I felt as though I would be pushing soon. At the time um, that the hospital OB stated it was, I was to have an emergency C-section. I distinctly remember my midwife and the hospital midwives looking at each other as though they disagreed with the decision, but no one said anything. I really regret not advocating for myself, but I think by this stage, I felt totally disempowered and was not in a good mental state. I think that hindsight gives us a different perspective. And I think we as birthing people, women, we need to give ourselves a real break on this one because it is really hard to advocate and fight for something when you are in the middle of one of the most intense experiences of your life with something at such at stake as the life of your baby, you yeah, know? The, so it's just, only it's informa- an impossible thing. Yeah. And the yeah. only information you have is what they're telling you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I really want women to be kind to themselves. Um, last minute, I ended up opting for GA. General anesthesia. Okay. Um, this was indicated as an option by the anesthesiologist. Um, (laughs) the British, the British are great, aren't they? As my body didn't seem to respond to pain relief, the epidural didn't work. And I had no faith that the anesthetist, um, getting the spinal block, correct. I now regret going under general anesthesia. Those who don't know, she would be asleep during the procedure. I was separated from my baby for a few hours after birth. My fiance was luckily doing skin to skin with her, but I was left lying in the recovery unit and seems they forgot about me. I kept crying and asking to see my baby. My fiance asked a midwife to go find me and I finally got taken to my baby. Overall, I was so shocked and deeply traumatized by my birth experience here. The good news is that my baby breastfed well for 11 months and I bonded very well with her. She's now 16 months old and an awesome little girl. I'm thinking about a future baby and have done loads of research into VBACs. I'm also researching home birth here in New Zealand. I don't know if I will ever trust going into a hospital again, unless I have a really good private midwife and a doula. Sorry for the long story. There is such, there is actually so much more I could write about this experience. Thank you so much for the, all the invaluable information you provide and for empowering women to make informed decisions. I look forward to all your new episodes and I still have a lot of older episodes to go through. Thank you, Caitlin. You know, I just saw a post uh, maybe this morning in my Instagram flurry um, Mm -hmm. that talked about that just because someone is a midwife doesn't mean that they, you know, follow the midwifery model or they honor the the thing. And, And, you know, the midwives that work in hospital systems are trapped. They're trapped and they, you know, they follow what the medical doctors want them to do. And two, when the medical doctors do something they're probably don't, they probably don't agree with, they stay silent. They're trained through the medical lens too. So, you know, and the only other thing I'll say about this for Caitlin is that the baby apparently was fine because the dad was having the baby skin to skin and stuff like that. So the baby didn't go to the NICU. The baby was fine. So these, these pHs were false. There was something wrong with them. I'm not saying that she might not have ended up with a C-section anyway. No one can know that. But the idea that she needed to have an emergency C-section done under general anesthesia for something that was clearly a false thing. 
And I'm wondering if they actually did cord gases on the baby, which would have been really interesting. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, it would probably be negligent because they're doing it for an emergency with a bad pH on the baby. So they'd probably want to document that the pH on the baby when it was born was better. And they, you know, so it would be really curious to see that. I, I just think that the, the, again, this whole thing was a cascade of unnecessary interventions totally. that led, it's a story that we've heard a thousand, thousand times. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've been saying recently, like, it, wouldn't it be great to just make a, a d different decision and not feel traumatized and then do all of the research to, to have the birth that you really wanted in the beginning. So it's, um, it's just one of those stories where she's feeling like, I'm so glad that she has really informed herself now. And I'm, I'm optimistic that she's going to have a very different experience next time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Caitlin. So what we're going to do now is take another quick break for the third of our sponsors. And we want to thank them again. And we hope that you will support them. Please. Splash Blanket, Element, and Needed. They support us, which helps us get the podcast out to you. We'll be right back. Bliss, tell us about Splash Blanket. I love my Splash Blanket, by the way. It is so cozy. And the great thing about this, besides being a beautifully double-sided with soft fleece and velvet smooth layer, it has integrated waterproof technology. So both sides are waterproof and it can hold up to a liter of fluid. Um, so it's awesome for things like community-based birth. So like, you know, your water broke, or you want to have something there that's not a plastic chucks pad, you, you know, and you want to kind of just elevate that experience. It's um, wonderful for that. It's also great for your babies, like changing and you wanted to sunbathe them and wanted to have them diaper free. This is a great thing to be able to use because it's so cozy. You could even put it in your car seat. Uh, it's a really soft, little yeah. cushy thing. Yeah, there's so many uses for our listeners. So I really want you guys to check them out and support them because it is a beautiful product that has, it has so much versatility and I guarantee that you are absolutely going to love it. So um, tell them, Stu, what they can do to access our beautiful discount code. You go to www.splashblanket.com and use the code birthing instincts and you'll get 11% off your purchase. That's www.splashblanket.com, code birthing instincts for 11% off your purchase. Thanks, Splash Blanket. Thanks, Splash Blanket. We're back. We're back. So I let's... have a great quote I wanted to read today. Okay, um, and, and, and yeah. then we're going to talk just, just mainly about this one group B strep article because t time is a factor here. Great. So this so represents how I feel about the medical model in regards to birth. It says, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Buckminster Fuller. It's a great quote, isn't it? Right. Creating something new is great because then people can decide whether or not the new thing is for them or not. Mm -hmm. Changing definitions, putting out articles, that have a predetermined outcome to get people to believe that they need to do something that's already established is coercion. And we've talked about science before and how it's been corrupted completely. Yeah. It's I was hard watching, to say I trust the science anymore. You can't. You yeah. Can't. 
Yeah. And certain people are not the science either. <laughs> but I was watching on television last night. There was a news story about the fact that an environmental think tank funded a study looking at gas stoves. And surprise, they found that gas stoves are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And they want to promote legislation to ban gas cooking in the United States. Right? Why are they dangerous? Oh, their fumes uh, affects children as if they care about what, you know, we'll inject your child with this toxic <laughs> substance like 72 times, but we were worried about gas stoves, which have been around for what, 100 years? Yeah. All right. So this is, a, this is an environmental think tank that supports research that comes out with a conclusion that they like and that they want. And it's bullshit. All these things are bullshit. There's nothing you can trust anymore except your own experiences in life and your own intuition. They don't want you to trust your what you see anymore. People dropping dead on a playing field. Oh, nothing to see here. Move on. We definitely know that it's not the vaccine. All right. We know that it's commotio cordis or whatever it is with this football player. It's like you don't know anything. You know what you think you know, and you ignore stuff. It's called confirmation bias. Yeah. And it's everywhere. And so this article came out in the Lancet on Group B Strep. And I think I sent it to you, right? Yes, you did. And I was really trying to like get through the content. It's it's dense. Well, there, yeah, it is dense. Yeah. And I and I yeah. highlighted it. I, I went through it so you don't have to. <laughs> well, I, I I got through a lot, but yeah. But anyway, it's titled Group B Streptococcus Infection During Pregnancy and Infancy, Estimates of Regional and Global Burden. So the most important thing about this article is that the funding was from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Who are all about vaccines. They're all about population control, vaccines, changing the way that we live our lives. These people, not just Bill and Melinda Gates, but, but these other people like the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization, they, they, these are megalomaniacs. But anything that's sponsored by them, you can't believe whatever they say. So this whole thing could be summarized in one word, bullshit. Because they have an agenda, is what yes. you're saying. Yeah. They have an agenda. Well, well, it's interesting because I, you know, you and I uh, inform people about the risk of GBS in uh, pregnancy and delivery all the time. I mean, all the time we're having these conversations. And I will tell you that as a person, if I just read this article without kind of being able to be like, wait a minute, you know? This is not necessarily what lines up with what I understand about this um, bacteria. Um, is it? It it sounds really friggin' scary, like the way that it's put together. And so I, that's why I kept kind of digging in because I was like, "Where are they getting these numbers from? How are they figuring this out?" Well, that's anyway, really that's really yeah. important. First of all, people want to go yeah. back to, to Birthing Instincts podcast number two twenty two. Uh, we did a yeah. podcast on GBS. So this is not about GBS and that sort of thing. This is about this mm -hmm. article. Mm -hmm. But if you read through the, through the article, every paragraph has the words, we estimated this, we estimated that, we predicted this. So this is all yeah. modeling. This is all modeling. And yeah. if anybody knows anything about modeling from the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, 2 million people in Britain, England were supposed to die and 10 million people, 20 million people in the United States were supposed to die according to, I think this guy's name is Ferguson, you know, coming out of some think tank, you know. And the question I would have for the Lancet is, um, how much did you get, how much money do you get from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? 
maybe you could open your books up and let people see wh who funds the Lancet and these other major journals. But the words estimate and predicted were over and over and over again. And I'm just going to, I made comments and I'm just going to read my comments because I think that's what people probably want to hear anyway. Mm -hmm. Medical predictions are not science. This is me. All right. So they say, our new estimates for 2020 including, include a synthesis of data for each GBS outcome. We also estimated, and then the estimated number, we also estimated. Notably, a high proportion of the burden is in low-income and middle-income countries where interpartum antibiotic administration is more challenging to Im implement. So what they're doing by saying that they estimate this and they estimate this and the risk is high and medical predictions that they, we should consider them to be science, they're often wrong, but what they're doing is they're setting the stage yeah. to try to, to get countries to accept a vaccine for GBS. The whole point of this article yes. is to, and again, I don't know that I have to convince any of our listeners very much, but vaccine skepticism, because of what they've done with COVID and the, and the deception, has now spread to all the other vaccines as well, and a lot of parents are no longer going to be putting their kids on this vaccine schedule. And they're going to yeah. be pulling their kids out of school and they're going to be moving to states where it's not mandatory. And the idea that, you know, you want to, and, and then, and the research that's coming out that they did on, on getting authorization for these, these drugs and these medications. I mean, the MMR vaccine was studied for like 40 some days. And in 40 some days, you can't see, does it cause autism? But yet the uh, CDC website definitively states, MMR does not cause autism. Right. Well, how do you know? It was only studied for 42 days or 48 days or whatever it was. Right. Um, you didn't follow these families. Yeah. And, and, not, and if you look at the history of all these vaccines, if you read Suzanne Humphrey's book, uh, Dissolving Illusions, you understand that there is no research. And once 1986 law got passed, which gave drug companies immunity, there's absolutely no reason for any drug company to actually do any research. It's insane. So they're going to try to come out with vaccines in the coming years that for everything, every disease that ails people, no matter how small a percentage of people are affected by it. And then they're well, going to want to get the, and then they're going to buy the FDA to get it to put on the mandatory schedule. Yes. Yeah. I was just going to say the people that follow us and the people that are like-minded in terms of being skeptical about a lot of this, not saying like, don't do anything, but at least question it and look into it for yourself. Right. Don't just go blindly, but there are a lot of people who blindly are following this. So they will take every vaccine that comes out. And there's a lot of money to be made, unfortunately. Yeah. They say, since most early onset GBS cases occur within 24 hours of birth, for our calculations, we assumed a high case fatality rate of 90%. That was crazy. <laughs> If now, you can see you me, I'm just, I'm like throwing up my arms. Uh, you assumed a 90%. So your calculations are based on assumption that 90% of people who get early onset GBS, babies, not people. Well, babies are people, but are going to die. <laughs> yeah. And, and the statistics that we share with our clients that are not even close to 90%, they're like a fraction of a percent. Doesn't yeah. mean that that's not serious for the families that, that happens to, but it, that's total misrepresentation. And then they say invasive GBS can lead to a neurodevelopmental problems in those who recover. So the 10% the who recover could have neurodevelopmental problems. So this is a really serious, serious disease, all right? 
Well, how have we lived? How have the human species survived? <laughs> if it's that serious, now I know I'm mocking them. And, you know, there may be some data in here that's, that is actually accurate. The problem is that there's so much hyperbole and, and it's so obviously tainted. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I highlighted this thing until I read it, but it says, note that data from the Argentinian site in the multi-center study were not included because the low proportion of identified patients who recovered from invasive GBS who were assessed might have been linked to selection bias. Oh, so they had a few, a small proportion of people who had invasive GBS disease who got really, really sick. So they finally decided to eliminate that study from their study. Oh my God. They, I don't know how many people they had in the study, but they had a total of 509 stillbirths, you know, in some, something called the CHAMPS study, Child Health and Mortality Prevention Surveillance. Well, 509 stillbirths is sad. Yeah. But if you're talking about 15 million babies, it's essentially zero. All right. I won't even read the statistical analysis because that will be like I don't this. even know. And I don't even know in these countries, how can they know that the stillbirth came from GBS. Statistically, it sounds like those are just, you know, there's a certain percentage of stillbirths that we have because, in general. Because any baby that dies in a motorcycle accident that has GBS <laughs> will be considered a GBS death. <laughs> Sound familiar? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me read this. It says, the risk of GBS maternal disease was 0.29 per 1,000 deliveries and was assumed to be the same in all countries. Okay, again, I highlight these things because almost every sentence says assumed or predicted right. or estimated. Which is not science. It's not science. Infants in sub-Saharan Africa have the highest burden of invasive GBS with nearly half of all global GBS-related deaths occurring there. All right. Well, does that mean the GBS there is more virulent or does that mean that their nutrition and their health and otherwise other things are contributing to that and maybe we should deal with that rather than coming trying to come up with a reason and skewing our numbers to find a reason to create a vaccine and then try to sell it to poor people in third world countries. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is the governments of these third world countries will take lots of money from the World Health Organization and from the Gates Foundation and then push this stuff on their people because the people who are running those countries will get lots of money and they will probably not get vaccinated. Right. Studies comparing the stillbirth risk in pregnant women with GBS colonization versus pregnant women with no evidence of GBS colonization and that adjust for potential confounders would probably improve the quantification of GBS stillbirth risk. So they're essentially saying that we we need to study people who have GBS and people who don't and see how that works. Yeah, that would be a good idea before you make a recommendation at the end of this thing that a vaccine is something to look, to look forward to. So then I, I wrote this down. I said, everything here is guesstimation, seemingly with a bias toward a designated endpoint. Furthermore, for parameters estimated at the global level, it is probable that the uncertainty was underestimated and point estimates might have been biased when applied to specific settings. By the way, this type of language, which I don't understand, and you probably, my listeners probably don't understand either, is the whole papers like this. I mean, Bliss said that earlier on. She said, was ready, you were ready to like explode trying to read this paper. <laughs> <laughs> for example, more data on neurologic injury after GBS meningitis were available for high-income countries, which implies, in addition to the potential bias, an underestimation of 
neurologic disease, risk after GBS meningitis when this global risk is applied to lower income settings. So that's an, that's an assumption that because lower income settings don't report as well. By the way, we don't report well here either. If people have looked at the VAERS system or other thing, we, our reporting for health injuries is skewed. Certain people re report stuff and then they go back to look for their report on the VAERS system. They can't find it. It's been deleted. But maybe their whole hypothesis is wrong. Like with COVID in Africa, they did quite well. They didn't have the problems that Western countries had or China had. Okay. So low income countries have maybe, maybe they have better natural immunity and maybe they have less disease. Is that a possibility? Or it's the only possibility, the only hypothesis they can support, one that gets them to the endpoint that a GBS vaccine is, is necessary. Mm -hmm. I'm just putting it out there. I just, you know, it's just so skeptic. And then they talk about, in summary, effective interventions could reduce the high incidence of, G of invasive GBS. All right. They don't define what effective is. Is it effective? Is it reasonable to give everybody antibiotics? And what's the downside of giving everybody antibiotics? They're going to say, well, there is a downside. That's why you need a vaccine. It is likely that maternal GBS vaccines could be more scalable than intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis in low resource settings. So all you had to do was read the title, see where the printing, where it came from, where it was printed in, and you could just see the inevitable, what was coming. Wait for it. Wait for it. Something that some pharmaceutical company will make a lot of money on that will help control people. If we haven't learned our lesson in the last two and a half, three years, we're doomed. And the, many of us are looking for alternatives, alternative economies, alternative communities, alternative ways to educate our children. We're finding out that all those people in the military and people who lost their jobs because they didn't want to get vaccinated or people who got vaccinated were forced to get, we're learning that those are the people now that are more at risk to get sick. Their immune systems have been compromised. They don't develop an immune response like somebody who's got natural immunity. This was known a hundred years ago. It was known before anything, any of this all happened. It was known by Fauci and everybody in the NIH and the CDC and the World Health. They all knew it and they did it anyway. I think what happens in obstetrics is bad and the way the medical model treats obstetrics, but this makes it look like kindergarten, what goes on in obstetrics. It's a different time, that's for sure. And um, things are, are rapidly changing. We just wanted to bring up, they, they haven't released this vaccine yet. It, Pfizer is working on it. Um, it does say in here, just as you mentioned, that Pfizer received a grant from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they're- um, As if they need they, a grant, by the way. Pfizer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because they're making so much money. Anyways, it hasn't been released yet, but when it does come out, I want you guys to be very skeptical um, in terms of looking at and weighing out the benefits of getting a vaccine in the late. Uh, they're saying that they would give it to you in your second or third trimester. Listen, uh, so. until you hear from Bliss and I otherwise, don't go anywhere near any of this stuff. All right. It's a foregone conclusion that it will come out, that it will be approved and rubber stamped by the FDA. Yeah. And that it will eventually. You know, I don't know that it will be on the children's vaccine schedule, but wow. if they can figure out a way to get it on there, they'll do that too. You know, it may very well be along with the hepatitis vaccine, something they recommend that all newborns get. Yeah. Especially if their parents <laughs> didn't get vaccinated. And look, this is like one of those things that we were talking about with vitamin. Like, why do babies have low vitamin K stores? What in the system that we don't totally understand because it is a really mir miraculous thing that goes on inside of our bodies, right? So 
this bacteria, there's all kinds of bacteria that we have inside of our bodies. We've learned that, you know, there's good quote unquote bacteria and bad bacteria, but this bacteria is benign. It lives in your colon. There's a reason for it. There's a reason why it's present. And um, we don't totally know that. So if we give ourselves a vaccine that wipes this out, what is the ramifications of that? So just something. To I think that they, these people think that there are good deaths and there are bad deaths. And they want to prevent all the bad deaths. But in their, in their madness to prevent all the bad deaths, they, people will die from their prevention. And then that will be, well, that's a good death because we're doing good. Stage one thinking. We think we're doing good. Never asking ourselves, does it actually do good? Right. Um, so I want to end on a, on a comedic note. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Why so not? I was, I was watching, uh, I don't know, it was on Instagram, I, I assume, maybe it was on TV. There was a comedian and he was talking about how amazing women are. And he said, say something like, God, women are amazing. They can make milk from scratch. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, milk, this is like, it's this thing. And it's like, they can make it <laughs> from scratch. It's pretty funny. The reason I'm saying that is because our friend Elliot Berlin, for those of you who live in Southern California, is having another parental comedy night for parents with, are pregnant or have a newborn. It's going to be at the Haha ha Comedy Club in Los Angeles on February 12th. Doors open at 5.30, I believe, and it starts at 6. So it is for parents because you'll be out by 8.30 and you can, your babysitter can go home. But you should look it into it. Um, you can find it on Elliot's Instagram page and or check into the probably the Haha ha Comedy Club's website. We'll have it as well. And we'll try to put a link to it up on our show notes. But I've been to some yeah, of them. So I've been to some of them yeah. when I was in LA. I might even just try to drive back to LA just to go to the show. You're so, so cute. But they're really so worth fun. going to. So check it out. Have a beautiful day. I'm going to go and get out in the sunshine at last because we're expecting more rain. I love you and the work that we're doing. And thank you to all of you who are commenting and participating with us. And um, make sure and reach out if you've got some stories or questions to share. Brilliant Instincts Podcast at gmail.com. And the new Google Voice is at 805-399-0439. All right, Bliss, see you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 